According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. We will open, as always, with a word of silent prayer so that we may verify, in fact, that we are humble and prepared to receive truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and the truth of your word, the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we recognize it's a grace provision. You can take it away tomorrow. And we don't earn this. We don't deserve this. I pray we take it seriously. I pray that we come to be fed, to be built up, to be strengthened. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, in this chapter, we are dealing with the long-term benefits of the Word of God as we have taken it from verse 1 on down. We are now uh, looking at the psalm in verses 13 through 18. And the psalm in verses 13 through 18 restates the doctrine that's found in verses 1 through 12. In other words, the description of the benefits of the Word of God. What What happens as you grow in grace? What happens as you receive the Word implanted? And so we find, starting in verse 13, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. It doesn't even compare, which makes it so pathetic when human beings substitute other things as a priority over the Word of God. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. All right, so here is the psalm in verses 13 through 18. And and some people uh, try to stretch the the psalm to uh, verse 19 as well. I believe verse 19 starts the next section. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. Uh, I take that as a separate issue than the, the psalm itself, which is verses 13 through 18. We have a psalm that opens and closes with happy. Uh, how happy, Asherah, happy is the man who finds wisdom in verse 13. And then verse 18, happy are all who hold her fast. And so it's a happy, happy song. It opens with happy, it closes with happy, and in between we have the blessings of um, hugging the right woman, that is, hugging the wisdom of the Word of God. So, if you're following along in the outline, this is main point six, I believe. Well, that's interesting. All right. I'm having computer issues today. I've done that three times since 9.30. I'm not going to reboot it again now. All right. It's a happy psalm as we studied under main point six. So point A, this is a happiness psalm, a beatitude like Psalm 1 and Psalm 119. Uh-huh. Well, perhaps. Ah, there's an issue. All right, well, if this will let me, I will resume the slideshow. Otherwise, we'll just go without it. How about that? Pause indexing for four hours. All right, we'll try it again.
All right. Solomon inserted a psalm at this point in chapter 3, which recaps the verses which precede it. Verses 13 through 18. There's really uh, a restatement of those first 12 verses. Not a whole lot that you can point to that says is absolutely new or not contained in those first 12 verses. It's just restating it now in a hymn form, in a psalm form. And uh, we can appreciate it on that basis. It is a happiness psalm. That is, it is a beatitude. It is a psalm that begins with the Hebrew Asherah, uh, like the, the name Asher in the tribe of Israel, is named uh, Happy. It is a happiness psalm. And this is not the blessings of Barak or Baraka. It's not Baraka blessings. It's not Eulogitas blessings. It is Asherah blessings. Or in the New Testament, it would be the Makarios blessings. It is the happiness blessings of identifying with God's grace provision. Wisdom and understanding is infinitely and eternally profitable. We studied that. Silver, gold, jewels, anything humanly desired is incomparable. It's actually insulting if you compare what is incomparable. As human beings, we try to compare the incomparable, and it fundamentally comes down to satanic imitation. Satan tried to compare himself to God. He said, I will be like the Most High God. And when we draw improper uh, comparisons, we are doing just what Satan did. And we are taking our finite human experience and substituting it for God's infinite, eternal blessings. Anything humanly desired is incomparable to her. And we're introduced to a female at this point. She's not named at this point other than the heading of wisdom in verse 3. Wisdom is a feminine noun, and it's not surprising that we find um, the, the feminine pronouns here throughout this paragraph. Her profit is better than the profit of silver. Her gain is better than fine gold. And we understand there's a distinction to be found between profit and gain. And that, I think, is lost on a lot of folks, economically or spiritually. Uh, the Word of God is profitable, but it's also for our gain. And there's different applications we can, uh, we can bring out of this concept as well. Both of her hands, left hand and right hand, she has two hands full of benefit for us. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. There are contexts in which one hand is a hand of blessing and one hand is a hand of cursing. Or there are passages in which there is a contrast with benefit on the one hand and, and adversity on the other hand. Uh, there are even contexts where there is uh, double discipline, where both the left hand and the right hand are both uh, detrimental to, uh, to the divine discipline that somebody is going through in the hand of God's judgment. This is a passage whereby both hands are uh, blessings. Both hands are blessings. And we can be thankful for that. Her ways and her paths are pleasant. In fact, we have two descriptions here, pleasant and peace. You might even think of this as the intersection of Pleasant Boulevard and Peace Avenue or something like that, right? Um, the corner of uh, Love Avenue and Hallelujah Street, for example, is where you know my mansion in heaven is, is being constructed right now, okay? At least according to one particular gospel song. Um, but think about this, the, the, the place of God's wisdom, the place where these meet, where does wisdom meet understanding? Where does ple pleasure meet peace, okay? If they are pleasant ways, that means that I take pleasure in them. Uh, understand the, the relationship between pleasant and pleasure, all right? And we want to understand it biblically, not in the way the world defines these things, okay? And that, I think, throws some people for a loop occasionally. Very common in Hebrew poetry to link ways with paths. In fact, time and time again, uh, we can have this throughout uh, the poetic por portions of the Old Testament. Last week, we looked at Job 24. We looked at Proverbs 1, verse 15. Uh, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. There is a difference between ways and paths. Ways is a more broad expression. Path is more precise with a, a specific uh, route that is being taken. Likewise, here in Proverbs 3.17, it's going to come back again in 7.25, 8.2, and 12.28. But just because we're dealing with poetry, don't think that it's meaningless. Don't think that we can ignore it or fail to understand that there's a difference between our ways and our path. And in all our ways, we are taught to acknowledge Him, and He will make our path straight, or he will direct our steps. Pleasant and pleasure, likewise, we want to understand in God's term, in God's definition, and we cannot separate pleasure with purity. 
In God's viewpoint, pleasure and purity are connected. And maybe the best one of these was either chapter 15 or chapter 16, where we saw that all of his ways were pleasant ways. They were, um, it was chapter 15 and verse 26. Evil plans are an abomination to the Lord, but pleasant words are pure. The connection between what is pleasant and what is pure. The world, of course, redefines all these things. The world finds things that are pleasant, or they call them pleasant. They're not pleasant at all. They should bring no pleasure to us because they bring no pleasure to God. Think about the verses in the Bible where God says, my soul takes no pleasure in it. So why is it that humans take pleasure in it? Well, it's a perversion. It's a perverted pleasure. And so uh, the conflict there, such as in Proverbs 9.17, for example, where we look at it and says, um, stolen water is sweet. This is the, the luring of the, uh, of the harlot. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Oh, come on, it'll be fun. All right. And uh, the, the confusion over things and, and rela- relabeling them and calling them pleasant when they're not. They're in defiance of the will of God. We want to be, be clear on that. So by the world's definitions, pleasant and pleasure are frequently perversions of God's design. And yet they will spend hours and hours and days, weeks, months, and years pursuing what they call pleasure, the passing pleasures of sin. And the more they pursue, the more miserable they get. And yet the more they work very, very hard to convince themselves that we're having fun now, <laughs> right? As, uh, as uh, we're experiencing the consequences, the hangovers, the addictions, the diseases and everything else that, that humanity experiences as the, con- uh, as the consequence of their, uh, of their ways. Finally then, the last bit of this hymn, what we couldn't quite get to last week, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. There was a tree that Adam and Eve were expelled from. They were not permitted to partake from it because they had actually partaken from the other tree. And so they were booted. They were expelled from the Garden of of Eden so they did not partake from the tree of life as fallen, dying, dead beings taking of that tree without the proper uh, salvation in place. So point F... And I, and I find this remarkable, this tree of life that we have available to us today. We don't go back in time and march into the uh, Garden of Eden. There is no more Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, wherever it was on Adam's earth, was clearly uh, relocated or destroyed. Or Noah's flood did a lot of damage, we understand, to this planet. <laughs> and much of the geography and topography and, and the recognizable uh, territory in terms of continents and everything else is... Uh, no longer present on earth today. If uh, you read somebody trying to find the Garden of Eden somewhere, it's about as useless as trying to find Noah's Ark, at least in my opinion. I think that uh, the lumber from Noah's Ark was, uh, was utilized uh, in that first generation off the Ark. I think they, they got all the building material they needed from the Ark itself in the, uh, in the early weeks and months uh, after the flood was complete. In any event, good luck trying to find the Garden of Eden. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 2. There was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and there will be a tree of life on the new earth. There will be a tree of life on the new earth. So let's start with Genesis 2, and then we'll go to Revelation 22. And um, we won't read every verse in between. We'll start with Genesis 2, and then we'll just flip back to Revelation 22. Okay, And we'll see these trees... All right. Verse 4 says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. They had a different water mechanism before the fall and a different water mechanism before the flood. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Man became a living soul. That is a nephesh with the chayah, life. 
And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So Eden wasn't the whole earth. Eden was a location on the earth, and within that location is where the garden was, uh, was planted, and that's where he placed the man. And out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's the uh, the planting of the tree, and of course that's the tree, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the one that they were forbidden to uh, to eat. Then we have the other detail that's here uh, about the rivers and about different things, um, and I think these are I don't want to get lost in this text today, but there's a lot of information here that's fundamental to humanity that actually spells out the laws of divine establishment. Um, including water rights. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah. And so the, the, the names of these rivers is significant. The, the meaning of these names is significant. Where they go and what they do is significant, not only in the provision of water, but dividing. And uh, surrounding land, the land of Havilah, and the, and the river forms a boundary. And so now we've got a a divider, and there's my side and your side, or one side and the other side. We understand. And uh, within this territory, there is gold. Well, why is that significant? Why is it that this land has gold and that land doesn't? And what's the purpose of the boundary? And what's the what is the nature of not only water rights but mineral rights and the nature of uh, possessions? What it is that God provides that is to be a possession. All of this, of course, is built into the command, thou shalt not steal, that tells us that, that stuff, if it doesn't belong to you, it doesn't belong to you. And if it does, it doesn't belong to anybody else. Anyway, fundamental things. And you think that it's a no-brainer and everyone would have a handle on this, but it seems like our whole culture is completely lost when it comes to why do we have borders? Why do we have nationalities? Why do we have stuff? And why is it that somebody else's stuff doesn't belong to me, even if I get politicians to steal it for for me and give it to me through taxation or whatever it's still stealing all right there i went and got distracted by the text again the second river gihon flows around the whole land of cush so havilah is not cush and cush is not havilah the name of the third river is tigris it flows east of assyria the fourth river is euphrates now, whether or not the pre-flood Tigris and Euphrates should be identified with the post-flood Tigris and Euphrates is interesting. And then a lot of argument and fighting back and forth between Pishon and Gihon, but in any event. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it, and he said, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. I mean, you talk about having all the food in the world. It was The whole planet was there to feed Adam. And uh, But... From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Not 930 years later, that day you will surely die. And the day that Adam ate from it, he died. He he died spiritually. That was the promise. That was the consequence. All right. So uh, we get to chapter 3. Of course, they sin. And uh, the woman is already uh, has a hermeneutical issue here. When the serpent's tempting her, she says, "Indeed, or the serpent says, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Really, God said you can't eat from any tree? It's not what God said at all. All right, He's twisting the words of God, and she uh, she feeds on that. Right? She's responsive to his deceit. And she said to the serpent, "From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. No, no, we can eat from those trees." But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will surely die. And there's so much there. And we, we key in on the fact that, that uh, she adds the expression, touch it. Okay, and we, that's important. We've got to spot the fact that she adds uh, touching to the issue. But also, I think there's another significant issue here. She only identifies one tree in the middle of the garden, as if in her universe, that's the only tree she's looking at. There's two very special trees in the middle of the garden. And however they were positioned, I don't know. I mean, whatever the garden was like, I don't know. It's not called a forest. It's called a garden. All right. And in this garden, in the midst of the garden, in the center of this garden are these two trees. And if they were nearby or, you know, a casual distance apart from one another, 
uh, whatever they were, there were two trees in the midst of the garden. But to hear her tell it, there was only one tree in the midst of the garden. And uh, it's really the only one she's obsessed with. It's the only one she's staring at all day long because it's the one she's not allowed to eat from. All right. So the serpent then is able to flat out lie to say, you surely will not die. God knows that your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so she takes, she eats. But notice her eyes are not open until her husband eats. I think this is significant as well. The woman saw the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and she ate. All right? She took and she ate. Now she is a sinner. She is a sinner by practice. But she is not coming under divine discipline until verse 7. And that is uh, very significant. She gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. She does not become a sinner by position until Adam becomes a sinner. And then God in his grace assigns her to be the first sinner dead in Adam. All right, in Adam. And of course, we relate our own nature in Adam because we're in Adam when he sinned and in Adam all die and we're in the loins of Adam when, when Adam sinned. But she too came from Adam. The rib came from Adam. She is in Adam, uh, literally and positionally. When God opens their eyes, the eyes of both of them were opened. And so here is God's judgment. On the day you eat from it, you will die. And they become spiritually dead at this point. Adam is spiritually dead. Eve is spiritually dead in Adam. You and I are spiritually dead in Adam because of verse 7. All right? Because of verse 7. It has nothing to do with the sins we've done. It's nothing to do with the long list of stuff I've done or the fact that my long list is shorter than your long list, so somehow I'm not quite a, as big a sinner as you are. Doesn't matter. Or if, if my list is 10 times longer than your list, doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with the list of stuff we've done. It is our spiritual death in Adam. In Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. And we can be thankful for that. Really, it has nothing to do with physical death either, which is uh, extraordinary. Everybody just assumes that, well, okay, now because they're spiritually dead, then uh, they're going to die physically. Well, what does the text say? Don't make an assumption. What does the text say? Um... At the end of the chapter, once they are redeemed and uh, he clothes them with animal skins and they are taught the principle of the blood sacrifice, the death of the innocent in place of the guilty, and uh, the animals died so they could, their nakedness could be covered. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand. Look at the danger here. He might stretch out his hand. And take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, that's the danger, and God can't let him do that. God can't let him do that. This was the purpose for the tree. Why was the tree there in the first place? All right, even before they fell, the tree of life was there. All right? Understand, physical death is not a consequence of the fall. You might want to write this down. (laughs) Physical death. Physical death of humanity is not a consequence of Adam's fall. Physical death for humanity is a consequence of having access to the tree of life revoked. According to Genesis 3.22. That had they stretched out their hand, taken from the tree of life and eaten, that would have sustained their physical bodies. All right, And I think if we don't understand the first tree of life, how are we going to understand the second tree of life? And how are we going to understand Proverbs and the wisdom of God as a spiritual tree of life for you and I today as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? All right, so here's the first tree of life in the garden that had they stretched out their hand and eaten from that tree, they would have lived forever. All right? And so they had to have their access to the tree of life revoked. But even before that, there's so many questions, right? I keep teasing, the, and I like answers in Genesis. I like them a lot, but it's, it's fun to, uh, to tweak it a little bit with my 
uh, invented questions in Genesis, all right? Because there are things that are not answered in Genesis. Even if they think everything can be answered in Genesis, I, I can prove for a fact that things are not answered in Genesis, that you've got to get from the whole counsel of the Word of God. And, uh, you know, why, uh, when, he, when he creates it, we read them already, we read the verse. Um, you may, uh, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to sight and good for food. And he said, you may eat from any tree except that one tree. Well, wh- why did Adam and Eve have to eat? What was the purpose of eating? They weren't sinners yet. They weren't going to die physically, right? And they, that's what they'll tell you. Well, what if they don't eat? And what if they do eat? And what happens when they eat? They, they pluck an apple off the tree. The apple died, didn't it? All right. They ate the apple. I don't want to get crude or whatever this morning, but we know what happens after you eat. Okay, it, it enters, it passes through. There's death even before sin. That's important, okay? Because there's some dumb views of, of death that, uh, well, I shouldn't say dumb views. There's some very common views of death that are flawed because of Romans 5 and in and, and this sense of people to try to do what they're doing with Romans 5, all right? The only death that was sparked by Adam's sin was the spiritual death of Adam and Eve the spiritual death of those in Adam, the consequences of sin, the judicial function of God that assigned spiritual death to humanity. It's the only death that took place on that day. All right, not physical death. Had they not eaten, they would have starved. Had they not eaten, their their perfect, sinless, gorgeous, naked bodies would have died. All right? Because those bodies required food. It has nothing to do with sin or anything of that sort. It's a mortal body. It's a dust body. And without food and water, dust bodies return to the dust. So, the snare is, of course, if he leaves that tree available with sinners, if he leaves that tree available, even though they're redeemed and covered by the animal skins, if he leaves that tree available, then they're going to have a possibility to create immortality with those fallen bodies. That's not his design. His design is uh, much better than that. All right, now, there will be a tree of life on the new earth, Revelation 22, 2. So let's flip there. Like I say, we can just flip to the back. We're not going to read every verse in between Genesis 2 and Revelation 22. That would take too long. Revelation 22. where we not only have a tree of life, but we have a river of life. Uh, The Garden of Eden had four rivers. None of them were the river of life. All right. So here's the uh, the new heavens and the new earth. We understand the context for this. At uh, the end of chapter 20 is the great white throne and the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and all things are new. We understand from 21.4 that there is no longer any death, no longer any mourning, no longer any crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So in Revelation 22, he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit. Now, if the original tree of life did this, we don't know. It doesn't tell us. Uh, how many kinds of fruit the original tree of life bore. But here we have the detail. Uh, I suspect it did, but I don't know. I can't prove it. Um, But bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, right? Like we have a hymn of the month around here. They have fruit of the month on the the tree of life. And maybe, you know, it's apple this month and banana next month and oranges after that or whatever. We don't uh, don't know. And... um, Or it could be 12 crops of fruit. Maybe it just has a whole new harvest every month. Whatever the case, it's going to be fun when we see it. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing or the health of the nations. The leaves of the tree were for the health of the nations. Now, if there's no more death, why do we need healing or health? All right, what's the nature of this tree and the tree of life for 
a sinless humanity after the great white throne judgment. Alright? And, by the way, um, I believe these are the verses that, that really help to defend the understanding of the thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ, of those who are still in procreative Adamic bodies after on the new heavens and new earth, all right? After the uh, great white throne judgment. See, there's another assumption people just jump to. They say, well, great white throne judgment, we're all given resurrection bodies. Well, if we're all given resurrection bodies, then there's no more procreating. There's no more babies. There's no more generations. And yet we're told there's going to be a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. So somebody's got to be procreating, Okay. It's these guys. And the tree of life and the water of life and the, le- the leaves of health are provided for the thousand generations like the original design was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. That is, they are in sinless but still mortal bodies. Sinless but still mortal bodies. All right. So there was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. There will be a tree of life on the new earth. But the tree of life provided to this fallen world, in other words, in between paradise lost with paradise found, okay? The tree of life provided to this fallen world is the wisdom of God. The tree of life we have access to, even Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, it spans all dispensations. The tree of life provided to this fallen world is the wisdom of God is introduced here in Proverbs 3, but it's not the only place it's introduced, or it's not the only place it's featured. Proverbs 3.18, She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Happy are all who hold her fast. Chapter 11 and verse 30. Proverbs 11.30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And he who is wise wins souls. If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. All right, well, we'll get to that. Um, There's more than this. I mean, there's additional agricultural imagery here. As it says in uh, verse 28, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the leaf, like the green leaf. He who troubles his own house will inherit wind, and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. But then the tree of life reference in verse 30, the fruit of of the righteous is a tree of life. So in other words, it's not just the wisdom that we learn, the wisdom that we know, the wisdom that we embrace, but then the fruit that we bear because of that, see, is a tree of life. He who is wise wins souls. Chapter 13 and verse 12. Again, there's more context here. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers it by labor increases it. Verse 12, hope... Yeah, there's a... Send that to our politicians. Um, Verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And that's going to take some work, but we'll deal with it. There's a tree of life. It's uh, the wisdom we're embracing. It's the fruit that we're bearing. It's the expression of wisdom in our daily life. Here in the third application, hope deferred and desire fulfilled. We're going to have to spend some time with that to figure out, is that our hope and desire? Is it his hope and desire? What is that? Finally, 15.4, Proverbs 15.4. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. So four references to a tree of life all within the book of Proverbs, and it's available for us today. This is the tree of life that God has provided for believers in this fallen world. It all has to do with the Word of God, how we study it, how we embrace it, how we apply it, how we communicate it to others, and how we how it, you know, with the hope and the desires how it shapes our perspective. It shapes our outlook. All right. 
Wisdom personified is the Old Testament Hebrew equivalent for the New Testament Greek expression of ha-logos. So here's sub-point one now. This wisdom that we embrace, she is a tree of life to all who hold her fast. She is a tree of life to those who hold who take hold of her, and happier all who hold her fast. Wisdom personified. There's been no name assigned to it here in this chapter, but when we get to chapter 8, we're going to find that it's Jesus Christ Himself. It is God the Son. It is the master worker that has created everything. Wisdom personified is the Old Testament Hebrew equivalent for the New Testament Greek expression of ha-logos. We have these metaphors, and these metaphors are used to describe Jesus. Whether it's the Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God, we understand the Word. We understand that that's God the Son, that's, that's Jesus Christ before His first advent incarnation from all eternity past. He's called the Word. In the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, he's called wisdom, the wisdom of God. Wisdom personified. Okay? Now, some people have problems with that. Some people don't like that. Uh, Some God-haters anyway, and some other folks pervert that, and they twist that. They find this, uh, they find in here the mother goddess. They find the the goddess wisdom, and they try to create this uh, idolatry out out of wisdom. And it's, uh, they, they twist it and manipulate things and fashion it into their, all their feminist uh, theology and all the, the, the garbage there, okay? That uh, this is God the mother who had a baby with God the father and all kinds of other stuff. All right? No. Wisdom personified is Jesus Christ. And it's going to have a greater uh, description in chapter 8. But we also see that this is the right woman to be embracing. So subpoint two now. Wisdom personified as a woman. The right woman to embrace. The right woman to embrace. Okay? And this is fundamentally what it comes down to. Are we embracing God's wisdom or are we embracing the world's wisdom? Are we embracing the satanic philosophy that is hostile to the, to the plan of God? The right woman to embrace. And this is language that, that, that uh, communicates. It gets very blunt. It's very, um, and it needs to be. Uh, if, when we're training our children, we need to be blunt. We need to be direct. And uh, I think the metaphor does that. And then don't, don't get lost in the metaphor and forget the bigger reality behind it, okay? This is, this is far bigger than just, well, faithfulness in your marriage. Far bigger than just, well, we want to be monogamous, we want to be faithful, we want to stay away from, from prostitutes. Okay? That's, that's, that's the metaphor. That's the, that's the, yes, it's an application, but don't confuse the application with the larger uh, message behind it is that I am either embracing God's wisdom or I'm embracing Satan's wisdom. And if I'm embracing Satan's wisdom, I'm committing harlotry, I'm committing adultery against God. Okay? And so if I embrace wisdom... That's the right woman. If I embrace the harlot, that's the wrong woman in terms of Satan's wisdom, in terms of the wisdom from below that is earthly, natural, demonic. You see the bigger picture on this? We want to be embracing the Word of God. Anytime we turn to the, to the world or religion or anything else, it is spiritual idolatry, spiritual adultery, spiritual harlotry. And that's the point that we get in uh, throughout these first nine chapters of, uh, of Proverbs. All right, so happy are all who hold her fast. That's who we want to be holding, okay? Holding to have and to hold. Holding and cuddling and fondling and caressing and all the other intimate expressions that are to be found. All right. Chapter 4 and verse 8. No, yes, verse 8. And you'll notice here... um, Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. Give attention that you may gain understanding. In verse 3, when I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother. You know, David is passing along the wisdom to Solomon, and Solomon is passing along wisdom to scads of kids, right? Rehoboam and everybody else. As, uh, I mean, how many women were there? How many children were there? 
When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son on the side of my mother. I think this is the tenderness of Bathsheba still grieving over Solomon's older brother. And now David comforting her. And now the birth of Solomon. All right. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Verse 5. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will guard you. Love her. And she will watch over you. And there's different terms for love, all right? There's the ahav love. There's the dode love, okay? almost looks like dowd, but it's dode. And uh, this is the the physical love, the marital love um, that we have throughout Proverbs. We have in uh, Song of Solomon and other places. Uh, The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. With all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. So here's, again, the embrace. It's not just holding, it's embracing. Okay? What's the difference between a hold and an embrace? (laughs) Well, all right, we get it. Uh, Chapter 5 and verse 20. This is the, uh, the positive as opposed to the uh, the negative, the lips of the adulteress drip honey. In verse 3, smoother than oil is her speech, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Yeah, it's a lot of fun while you're doing it, but what's the, what's the price you pay? And the, the end of that road is destruction. And uh, you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. See, all sin has spiritual consequences, but fornication has spiritual and physical consequences as well. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. This is the blessings of sexual activity between a husband and a wife in marriage. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. All right. A lot of men are ruining their fountains because they're embracing the wrong, the wrong deal. All right. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her physical love. Okay. And that's God's provision. It's like we have in First Corinthians, because you know, better to marry than to burn. If and. Uh, the, the provision for the, the physical needs of humanity, the physical needs, the physical wants, and all of that, is marriage, a husband and wife together. Uh, for why should you, my son, be exhilarated, same exhilarated in verse 19, with an adulteress, and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches his paths and so forth. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. The damage that's done when you destroy your soul. Think about what David did when he destroyed his soul with polygamy and he destroyed his soul with with adultery and he destroyed his soul with improper sexual uh, activity. Look what Solomon did. The wisest man that ever lived. Poisoned his soul. There are effects damage that's done all right embrace there's the term in 520 and then chapter 9 verses 1 through 6 wisdom has built her house she has hewn out her seven pillars she has prepared her food she has mixed her wine she has set her table she has sent out maidens she calls from the tops of the heights of the city now, who are these maidens? This is kind of fun. And uh, it's like the daughters of Jerusalem that Shulamith is going to be warning in uh, Song of Solomon about uh, awakening uh, physical love before she pleases, before it pleases, and the, uh, the dangers of, of premarital, uh, premature uh, physical love. Well, here's the handmaidens. All right. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says... Come, eat of my food, drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. This is the proper offer. The harlot will make a similar offer. All right. 
And this is why we, want, we recognize there's two different venues, two different options for wisdom. God's wisdom, the wisdom from above, or Satan's wisdom, the wisdom from below. And both are spoken of as a female, uh, as a woman, calling out. All right, well, you have the woman of folly in verse 13 of the same chapter. calling to those who pass by. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. See, it, sa- it sounds familiar, doesn't it? To him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet. Well, there it is. All right. We want to make sure we're embracing the right woman. And when it comes to God's wisdom, that's Jesus Christ. Okay? <laughs> Does that bother you for Jesus to be called a woman? Okay, it's just the poetry, you understand? It's the poetry with a feminine noun of chachma for wisdom. Also, the reality for David warning Solomon. He's going to warn Solomon about girls. Okay, if uh, feel free to turn it around if you have if you're raising a daughter, and by all means warn your daughters about boys. Okay, and uh, and the issues there. Every one of these warnings in the book of Proverbs is is applicable in the other direction. All right, moving on to point seven then, verses nineteen and twenty. Pursuing wisdom, understanding, and knowledge makes sense. Given the Lord's employment of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge to create and govern the universe. Proverbs 3, verses 19 and 20. Pursuing wisdom, understanding, and knowledge makes sense. Given the Lord's employment of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge to create and govern the universe. Proverbs 3, verses 19 and 20. This is why it's so um, bizarre, unthinkable. And I mean, why would you turn to any other wisdom? Because the wisdom of God is what created you. The wisdom of God created the entire universe. And it's available for us. The wisdom of God that created the universe has been offered to us that we can appropriate it, we can employ it. It's like Peter saying, Lord, where would we go? When when all the disciples are abandoning Jesus right and left, and the Lord turns to the twelve and says, you too aren't going to, you know, are you going to leave me also? And Peter says, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? It's, 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 It's ludicrous to think that we would turn to somebody other than Jesus Christ. It's, it's just, it boggles the mind that some of John the Baptist's disciples didn't follow Jesus. They stuck with the baptizer. You know, Peter and James and John and Andrew, they, they left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. Why didn't all of them? Who were the, who were the, the, the morons that stuck with, the, with John the Baptist, you know? I mean, are, are you really just, are you, uh, are you following a, a cult leader? What are you doing? Are you just wrapped up in the personality of somebody? You know, I mean, I realize, I realize you guys love your pastor and everything, but if, when Jesus Christ returns at the rapture of the church, okay, I'm done. <laughs> you want to start following Jesus? I can't, it just boggles the mind that, that disciples of John the Baptist stayed with him after he unveiled the Christ and said, here he is. Anyway, where would we go? When the wisdom of God that created the universe has been offered to us, why would we say, no, thanks. Let's pursue this other wisdom instead. What did the wisdom of Satan ever do? Did it create and sustain the universe? All right. So we read in verse 19, the Lord, Yahweh, by wisdom, founded the earth. We understand that God the Father, Yahweh in this context, initiated a plan and a design as the architect. But Jesus is the builder. He's the carpenter. You could even rephrase this to say the Lord by the instrumentality, you know, God the Father by the instrumentality of God the Son built this place. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. Now we're going to combine the poetry and understand that we don't have wisdom without understanding. They are linked. They are connected. He created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They're both in view. And Jesus Christ did this. 
Not only did He create everything, He's also in charge of it. By His knowledge, the deeps were broken up. Remember we saw that initially it was just a mist that would arise? It was initially just the fountains of the deep that were buried underneath the, um, the surface? Well, He's going to break that up when He floods this earth in Noah's flood. And He did that very well. And the skies drip with dew. And now he institutes the, uh, the water cycle as we understand it today, whereby the, the uh, rain falls from above. The skies now drip with dew. It wasn't always that way. Okay? We saw that already in Genesis chapter 2. There, there wasn't rain until after, until after the, uh, or until the, 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 the flood itself. He rained for 40 days and 40 nights. All right. Doesn't it make sense? I mean, God knows what He's doing. He's always known what He's doing. He applies wisdom and understanding and knowledge. All three terms are here. He did so to create the earth and the heavens. And He did so to nearly destroy the earth, but not quite. Okay, He preserved eight souls. He brought a great destruction upon the earth, and He's free to do so. It's His earth. All right, He can do what He wants with what He has, with what's His. He built it. He can destroy it. But he preserves eight souls. Now he has a provision as the skies drip with dew until he turns it off. Why does he use drought and famine as a part of his judgment and his discipline upon the land? Because he's free to do that. He's the creator. He's the creator and the sustainer. I think this gets lost in a lot of people's mind. All right. He's the creator and the sustainer. And, uh, well, that's why I added the phrase create and govern. To create and govern the universe. Turns on the rain, turns off the rain, controls the, the, uh, the water that we all need. Now, this is going to get expanded in chapter 8. The role of wisdom in the creation of the earth will be expanded in chapter 8. And I hope we, we're going to spend some time with this and, and really spell it out because it's fundamental to the plan of God. It's fundamental to the recognition of, of God the Father's good pleasure to exalt and glorify Jesus Christ. That He is the Beloved One. He is the One that the Father has birthed from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world. So the role of wisdom in the creation of the earth. Let's just... Take a quick preview of it here. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31. Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. And so we don't lose track. This is I wisdom. In verse 12. I wisdom dwell with prudence. Okay? And it's in the first person. I, 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 I. Counsel is mine, with me, uh, by me, I, with me. My fruit, I. All of this is I, 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 I. And then we get down to verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way before His works of old. All right. So now we have the actual birthing of the humanity of Jesus Christ described for us here in Proverbs 8.22. But we understand it's wisdom still that's speaking. That's, that's consistent all the way from verse 12 and following. Now the background. Yahweh kanad me at the beginning of His way before His works of old. And when we go through this, we're going to give you all the, the terminology for kanad. It's like the name Cain. All right, When Eve kanad a child, she named him Cain. I have kanad, a man-child, from the Lord. Kana means to acquire, to give birth, to possess, to have. Kana is a marvelously uh, useful term. It, it just means, I got it. I acquired it. You know, it's like that. It's like get. Think how useful get is. Okay? And if I have to, I'll... Explain it three or four more times until you get it. All right? Get. 
Get what I'm talking about? Okay. Get is the English equivalent of kana. It is so useful. It is so it is so um, ubiquitous. You can, depending on the context, it could be all kinds of things. You can get something in a lot of different ways. You can buy it, and sometimes kana is used in a in a in a purchase, in a in a monetary transaction, in some kind of a marketplace uh, purchase. Think about the last thing you got at the marketplace, okay? And you spent money for it, you got it. It can also be used of stealing something because you got it through, uh, you know, the, the five-finger discount, okay? You just swiped it and didn't pay for it, okay? Kana could be used for theft. Kana could be used for a purchase. Kana can be used for a childbirth as Eve kanad Cain and Abel. And with the first son she kanad, she named him Kana, she named him Cain. Okay? The name comes from the verb. There's different ways you can kana something. And so you need a you need a context to see, well, maybe he purchased me, maybe he stole me, maybe he built me, maybe he birthed me. And what we're going to find in the following verses is time and time and time again, we have childbearing terminology. But we're told when it is, the beginning, before his works of old before his works of eternity. What beginning is this? Is this the Genesis 1-1 beginning? Is this the John 1-1 beginning? Or is this the beginning beginning even before all of those? Well, I believe the John 1-1 beginning is the earliest of the beginnings, but then this one is before the Genesis 1-1 beginning. Because that would be his works of old. All right, from everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. That's a childbearing term. And now we start to realize he didn't me as a purchase or a theft. He didn't build him. Didn't create him. He birthed him. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. There it is again. Brought forth. It's a childbearing term. It's in 24. It's in 25. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set forth uh, for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Now this all sounds like God the Father is the creator. God the Father is doing all this stuff. Okay, but we know from John 1 and Colossians 1, we know that Jesus is the creator. Jesus did all this stuff. Why is he saying the Father did it all? Well, because the Father designed it. The Father planned it. The Father intended it. He did it all in his mind. He did it all in his plan. And then he gave it to the Son to execute. Which we see right here. Verse 30. I was beside him, or then, or at that time, through all this, I was beside him as a master workman. See, he was the architect. Jesus was the carpenter, the workman. And I was daily his delight, playing always before him, or rejoicing always before him. In a child context, this is a little child playing, and the father is delighted to see his child playing. could also be in a marital context, and that's a different kind of playing. All right. Bible uses that expression too. When uh, Isaac was playing with Rebecca and and uh, they got spotted, and uh, he said, "Aha! She's not your sister." All right. Well, we're out of time. We will come back to this because this is the wisdom that created the universe. Why would we go to any other wisdom? The wisdom that created the universe is available for us. We need to embrace it. We need to make use of it. You see what the Father did with His wisdom. What would we do with this wisdom? That's the point. Jesus said, greater works than these you will do. We need to make sure we're embracing the right kind of wisdom. All right? Thank you, Father, for this day, for this truth, for your faithfulness. Thank you for fixing the computer and whatever else you chose to do there, Father, giving us a slideshow, points to look at. Father, uh, help us to understand, not lose the, uh, the metaphor for the reality. Um, Father, it's not all about hugging and kissing and all the physical stuff, Father. It's, 
the, the, the reality behind it is, are we embracing you? Are we embracing your son? Are we faithful to you? Or are we uh, spiritually harlots, Father, pursuing the things of this world? Um, give us this understanding that we might make the appropriate application. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.